Welcome to Mud Season, a podcast that helps cut through the mud by drawing from original research. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Research on Vermont, examining Vermont's social, cultural, economic, and physical environment since 1974. Join us as we use the Laboratory of Vermont to deepen our understanding of the world around us. I'm your host, Eliza Giles, and in this episode, we travel back in time to an early point in Vermont history, the age of the Rutland and Burlington Railroad. We'll examine the landscape of America at the time of its construction, the railroad itself, and the events that led to its abandonment in 1963. We'll also talk about its historical significance to the state of Vermont and the importance of preserving the memory of the Rutland, as well as where it is today. Although train transportation in America, when compared to modern alternatives, is often considered antiquated, the sound of a train, even today, remains romantic to the American ear. This is interesting considering the sheer lack of railway travel by Americans in comparison to other parts of the world. Now, some of this is for political reasons, and I'm not going to construct an argument for modernizing the American railway system, but consider the sound a train makes and the associations that come to mind. There's something nostalgic about the way we characterize trains. Whether it's loved ones departing a train station in an old Hollywood movie, or a haunting image of an abandoned rail yard. This isn't surprising, since descriptions of trains fill some of our country's most influential poetry and writings. In 1844, Ralph Waldo Emerson described the railroad iron as a magician's rod in its power to evoke the sleeping energies of land and water. That is a deeply romantic and poetic description of a piece of metal. But it makes sense that trains had this effect on the American public. The dawn of America's train system coincided with our country's infancy. Trains in America are strongly tied to this specific period of American history, a time full of unknowns and excitement. In the year 1800, the small percentage of the country who was eligible to vote had just elected Thomas Jefferson as the third president of the United States. Jefferson came into office with a dream of connecting every community in America, creating a more cohesive country through trade. He envisioned the possibility of a large waterway cutting through the country and connecting the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Reclaim another million acres of dry As we know today, no waterway like this exists. And this is what explorers Meriwether Lewis and William Clark of the Lewis and Clark Expedition discovered when they went searching for such a waterway. Jefferson instead decided to construct a complex system of roads, rivers, man-made waterways, and railroads. All over the world, the development of rivers has always been part of man's progress. His conquest of rivers and his These systems changed the American use, landscape and established a new national economy. And the change was taking place at a rapid rate. In 1829, the first railroad to carry passengers opened in Pennsylvania. Along with this growth in transport and accessibility, fur traders and settlers took to the Oregon Trail to explore and colonize the uncharted Western Territory. Men and women who look westward hopefully. With the first wagon train departure at West, known as the Great Migration of 1843. This sparked a number of migrations to other Western territories throughout the 1840s. The country was becoming accessible and growing rapidly. And actually, many of our largest cities came out of this era built around the accessibility of the trains. Los Angeles is a famous example of this. Built at the meeting point of the Transcontinental Railway, Jefferson's Vision, and the Santa Fe Railway. It's one of the reasons the city is so sprawling today. 1943 was also the year that Vermont chartered the Rutland and Burlington Railroad, a railroad designed to connect the city of Burlington, Vermont, to what is now Rutland, Vermont. The railroad was completed in 1849, incorporating and charting other railroads in the area, including the Northern Railroad Company, Western Vermont Railroad, and Vermont Valley Railroad. Railroads that, for the most part, are still in use today, 
And surprisingly, the rail portion of the systems haven't changed that much. Uh, well, there's certainly a lot of technology has advanced since then. <laughs> That's David Wolfson, who oversees these rails today. To clarify, while the tracks haven't changed that much, the trains themselves have changed and evolved significantly since the early 1800s. My name is David Wolfson. I'm president of Vermont Rail System, which operates many parts of the old Rutland trackage. Remember the railways Wolfson operates were built nearly 200 years ago. But according to him, these systems of rails work logically within the Vermont landscape. If we were to construct them today, they probably wouldn't look very different. The thing that always amazes me when you look at the days when they built these railroads with a surveyor, you know, an engineer using uh, transit and aligning his uh, location from the stars and actual physical going out on a horse and reading the land and looking where the best place to build a railroad is. A lot of places around here because we're next to mountains and rivers everywhere we go. The railroads were built into Vermont's unique landscape fitting what was there instead of altering the land. What, what amazes me is that if you had to build this railroad today with all the technology we have, you know, with GPS and you know, satellite images and all this stuff, I think that the railroads would look pretty much the same as where they're at because there aren't many other options. Wolfson admits today's technology might involve more environmental modification. You know, other than and maybe a tunnel here or there where they may, instead of going around the mountain, they might have gone through it. And just as they followed the rules of the landscape, these railways were tied to the industries of the land they occupied. This was the Jeffersonian dream, part of why Vermont looks the way it does today. Rutland at the time was a large producer of dairy products and was home to high-quality marble deposits. The railroad made the large-scale trade of lumber, marble, slate, granite, and dairy possible. In 1851, the train operated the first refrigerator car in the U.S. The milk car, as it was known, was successful in shipping butter as far as Boston and freight cars filled with ice made possible by the ice trade, which was also expanding at this time. The success of the Rutland and Burlington Railroad and its chartered expansions led it to being renamed the Rutland Railroad Company, with the train known simply as the Rutland by 1867. The massive success of the Rutland Railroad was beneficial to economic growth across Vermont, but perhaps the most striking outcome was the rapid growth of Rutland itself. What we know as Rutland today, the third largest city in Vermont, was only a small town prior to the Rutland Railroad. The town was home to marble quarries, but no efficient method of transportation meant that the quarries were essentially worthless before the advent of the train systems. The Rutland Railroad Company made these quarries profitable and Rutland soon surpassed marble production in Italy, making Rutland one of the world's leading marble producers, as well as the railroad center of Vermont. With job openings in the new industry, former quarry workers from Italy moved all the way to Rutland for work. The ease of travel due to the trains also made Rutland a desirable place to live for those not working in the quarries, leading to a spike in population. It should be beautiful this time of the year in Vermont. All its this, combined with Rutland's new financial prosperity, led to rapid urbanization, which continued through the Civil War. Rutland officially became Vermont's third city in 1892, and as a center for wealth, also became a cultural center for the arts, with opera houses and playhouses opening throughout the city. Rutland flourished throughout the 1890s and early 1900s, and evidence of this golden era can be found throughout the city today. While Rutland was particularly graced by this cross-section between industry and transportation during this era, many other Vermont towns and cities came out of the railway systems as well. Barrie became Vermont's fifth city in 1895, and experienced similar economic and population growth due to its booming granite industry. Granite, too, is a major product of Vermont. 
At Barrie, in the central part of the state, the Rock of Ages quarries produce more granite and manufacture more memorials than any similar organization yeah, in the world. cities and towns all over this, this place that was in Vermont, especially, that grew up around the railroad. And there, Rutland is still a railroad town. It still has four major connections coming into it. St. Albans is a railroad town. White River Junction is a railroad town. Bellows Falls, Brattleboro, Newport, St. Johnsbury was a railroad town. You know, and that is still there. Just, you know, they have interstates running through them also. So it's not so much for passengers, but for the freight, a lot of these places are still railroad hubs. While Rutland flourished, the Rutland Railroad Company continued to expand north into Canada and south into New York State with company ownership changing several times in the late 19th century. However, the early part of the 20th century brought many hardships around the world, and the Rutland was not exempt from this. The infamous 1927 floods of Vermont devastated all of Vermont infrastructure, including the Rutland. When the Great Depression hit, the Rutland struggled to come back. Both the industries and the people that kept the train alive were struggling. The same paralysis that lames the cities blights the farms. And out in the country, too, men are asking, what's wrong? What's happening? Farm prices have dropped disastrously, and a man's work no longer brings him a just return. The threat of foreclosure... The whole country anxiously listened to Franklin D. Roosevelt's fireside chats as the president attempted to regain the trust of millions of Americans who had lost faith in their country and in their government. You people must have faith. You must not be stampeded by rumors or guesses. Let us unite... In banishing fear, we have provided the machinery to restore our financial system. But in the and case of the, the Rutland, the damage was done. It, it pushed into bankruptcy and receivership in 1938. After World War II, remaining stocks were sold and the Rutland Railroad Company rebranded as the Rutland Railway. Still, the Rutland struggled to keep up with the times. The train system couldn't keep up with the highway construction and the rise of car usage. After two employee strikes, the first of which resulted in the elimination of all passenger services, the Rutland Railway applied for abandonment of all of its lines set for 1963, when the state took ownership of parts of the railway. The loss of the Rutland Railway greatly devastated the city of Rutland. The city experienced a large decrease in jobs, it struggled economically. What was once considered the cultural capital of Vermont, only half a century before, declined at a rapid rate. But wait, this isn't just a sad story. While both the Rutland and the city and township of Rutland suffered great tragedy, their stories aren't just about hardship and collapse. I would argue that they're stories of great transformation in the face of great adversity. Change, after all, isn't necessarily a bad thing. Let's go back to David Wolfson, president of Vermont Rail System. Remember his family's experience with the Rutland only started after its abandonment. But where is it now? Some of it has uh, been torn up and then abandoned, and other pieces of it are alive and well and prosperous. Vermont Railway was incorporated in 1963, and we began operations in 1964, in January. And my dad, Jay Wolfson, was the founder of Vermont Rail System back then. Uh, he had operated a small railroad in New Jersey and New York, uh, and saw this as an opportunity to preserve rail service in Vermont. When he came up here and did his initial business plan, the Rutland Railroad had already been out of business. The tracks were not being used at all, and there were no people working here. So my dad contacted the state of Vermont and talked to them about being uh, 
you know, an operator of the railroad, and the state was very interested in doing that. And they were able to construct a lease where the state of Vermont bought the track and the land and had a long-term lease arrangement with my dad to operate it. At that point in time, back in 1963, when they came up with that arrangement, it was the first one of those concepts where it was a privately operated, publicly owned asset. And that was the first one of those in the country. And that in itself probably had a lot to do with the saving of the, the infrastructure that was here. And January 6th was the first day of operation, uh, 1964. And from that day on, it's kind of gone up and up and up. So thanks to the pre-existing infrastructure and Jay Wolfson's determination to keep Vermont's rails in service, the system was only down for a year after the Rutland's demise. I should add that it's a bit different from the picture we painted in the podcast. Remember the strike that ended all passenger service? Well, the Vermont rail system operates mostly freight trains, but they do have some tourist trains. Still, it's nothing like the passenger transport system of the Rutland. With airlines and interstates, the freight business is more viable, though they do allow Amtrak to use some of their lines. Like I said, passenger train surface is highly politicized in the United States. The freight industry isn't. It's just objectively more sustainable and efficient. That's not to say the rail system doesn't serve Vermonters, though. We move about 25,000 carloads a year. 80% of our business is Vermont business, meaning that the freight either originates or terminates in Vermont. So we're truly a Vermont railroad that services Vermonters. And the Vermont rail system even operates in the most Vermont way. We had, in Vermont, people are familiar with the family farm. We had the family railroad. So when I was a kid, right from very, very young age, I used to come down here and you know, hang around the shop and learn about engines and learn about track and do different things and ride with my dad on trains. And, you know, probably the first time I ran an engine, I was probably seven or eight years old. I should also say that um, when my dad passed away in 1980, I was 22 years old and by no means prepared to be the president of the railroad. You know, he died suddenly, so I certainly didn't learn as much as I would have liked to. But I got enough to get the hang of it, and it's always been in my heart and in my blood. And I believe that, uh, you know, that's where it's heading in the future also. As for Rutland, it's a little more complicated. It is a city, a community after all. When the Rutland was abandoned, the metal rails waited patiently for the Wolfson family to revive them. The same doesn't go for people and places. Rutland. State police call it the nexus of Vermont's heroin crisis. are being transformed into drug dens as the heroin epidemic makes its mark on the streets of Rutland, Vermont. Local, state, and federal authorities are teaming up to tackle drug operations in Vermont. Rutland. Rutland's bad reputation for poverty, crime, and drugs has given it national coverage. Sensationalized due to Vermont's reputation as one of America's healthiest and safest states. In reality, the story isn't dissimilar to that of many cities of industry across the United States. Rutland remains, while the industry, which gave it life, does not. What differentiates Rutland's story is that they're putting up a fight. The present generation of Rutland is determined to overcome this adversity and recover as a city, and as a community, and it's working. In fact, the Rutland Historical Society calls this current historical period of Rutland from 1981 to the present, Rutland's revitalization period. The U.S. News and World Report's 2018 ranking of the healthiest U.S. communities ranked Rutland County 22nd on the index's top 100 up-and-coming communities, the only Vermont region on the list. 
Rutland has also welcomed many refugee families to the city over the years in an effort to increase the city's population. There's even talk of reviving some of Rutland's train systems, a gesture to the city's past. I know that the state and the federal government has invested a substantial amount of money in the north end of our railroad between Rutland and Burlington in order to eventually get Amtrak to come into the Burlington station here, which I think will probably happen around 2020 by the time all the work is done. It seems as if Rutland, a city originally built for the convenience of those around it, may finally return to its former glory, but this time on its own terms and not at anyone else's. Rutland, in the south central part of the state, is known as the Marble City. From these quarries comes more than 70% of the marble for the monuments and statuary of America. The marble is found in more than 100 varieties, ranging from jet black to Parian white, and the handling of the giant blocks is a marvel of mechanical ingenuity. Thank you for listening to Mud Season, presented by the Center for Research on Vermont. This week's podcast is titled The Golden Railway, The Rise and Fall of the Rutland. This episode included research provided by the Rutland Railroad Historical Society, American Heritage, the Rutland Historical Society, and records from the Bennington Museum, Art History and Innovation. Also, special thanks to David Wolfson and the Vermont Rail System. If you're studying Vermont, either as a profession or as a hobby, consider applying for membership to the Center for Research on Vermont. It costs nothing and will help you keep up to date with the latest Vermont news and research, as well as with future podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook or on Twitter and Instagram under username at CRVT underscore. If you know of a story that should be featured on our show, please contact us. If we miss something or if anything in this episode is incorrect, please email us at CRVT at uvm.edu and we'll update the information. Regardless, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. <laughs>